This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's talk about Ontario politics. Lots going on. Uh, this morning, uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne uh, announcing a new uh, child care program for uh, preschools beginning in 2020. And as well, an online guerrilla campaign takes aim at uh, PC leader Doug Ford. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, you know, the poster's up, beware of Doug, that sort of thing. Um, does this sort of thing have a tendency to backfire? Is it going to gain momentum? Uh, let's talk about all of this. Bring in Christopher Cochran, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christopher, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So are you surprised to see an online guerrilla campaign taking aim at uh, the PC leader? No, not at all. I mean, this is the election, really, where we're, we're about to get a first brush with the new campaign rules. Ontario has been for quite a while in Canada a bit of a wild west. There's there's very few spending restrictions uh, on by third parties that could spend whatever they wanted, millions of dollars in campaigns. Spending restrictions have come in against third parties, and this is the first election that those restrictions take effect. And so I expect to see more opportunity for different kinds of groups to try to get a little bit of a say out there, even if they can't invest the millions they used to be able to. Is that what this is all about? Is that what we're seeing here? Is just different strategy at play? Well, it, it'd be interesting to see who's behind these groups. I mean, in some cases, you might find one person or so behind them. But even if you go onto their webpage and try to find out who they are, there's no names associated with it. So it's 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 almost anonymous, at least from the standpoint of the public. Uh, when you when you try to figure out who's behind it, so I don't know if it's the same groups that used to you know invest in in the past or not. But one thing is clear is that it's easier now for for groups to form and have some say at least in the political process because when the most anybody can spend over a six month period is six hundred thousand, and you know I think it's something like. Uh, 24000 during the campaign itself or something like that, when that's the mo- most they can spend, that certainly gives smaller players more of an opportunity than if the big players are spending millions and millions and millions on ads and other forms of political advertisements. Uh, are people now more conscious of the ads they are seeing simply because of, of what we've seen play out in, in on social media and within politics in the U.S. and such? Uh, is there a purpose? Is there a reason why perhaps um, organizations, whatever, should put their name on things like this? Does it have less credibility if we just see a, a note that says, beware of Doug? Well, I think, I mean, I think even with organizations, you know, one of the ways that people do make decisions about politics is by checking the source. So it doesn't even really have that much to do in some cases with the message itself. It's just simply do people like or trust the source of the message. When the, when the message is anonymous, I mean, I don't think these messages are going to have much of an impact. It's not even clear that large-scale political advertising has the kind of impact that would justify its cost. In fact, uh, a lot of evidence suggests that the impact is mixed and marginal, if it's even there at all. So small-scale ad, ad campaigns that are anonymous, that are unlikely to reach too wide of a group, I don't think are going to sway too many voters one way or the other. Could this tactic backfire? It depends on the messaging. Uh, you know, I think Doug Ford's record is pretty well known in Toronto. Uh, you know, he was certainly associated with some tumultuous times in municipal politics. Whether or not that was as widely known, and I think it was, outside of Toronto, elsewhere in Ontario, uh, is one thing. But I, I don't really think that these, these ads are going to change too many, too many people's minds. And I do think that they're going to give Doug Ford uh, an opportunity again here to say that this is a group of you know, insiders, as he'll call them, or people that don't want 
uh, that don't want him as premier that are just, you know, spreading these things to try to keep him out. But on the other hand, there are obviously groups as well that are aligned with Doug Ford against Kathleen Wynne, so any card he plays there could be equally easily played against him. Does opposition understand why this candidate is drawing so much attention to himself, why, why this candidate seems to be, uh, you know, gaining steam? Well, I think he's, you know, he is an embodiment of uh, frustration that a lot of people feel with the government. And it's a you know, government, obviously, that's been in for a very long time. And incumbents do tend to, to lose support uh, over, over long periods. And this is a change election, and he's a different kind of candidate. So he's, uh, you know, people know him. Uh, he's familiar, but yet uh, still an outsider. And, you know, no matter what people say about Doug Ford, there's really no way that you could say that he sounds like a typical politician. He's, he's very unique. He has his own way of speaking, and I think it's precisely that that makes people in part dislike him so much uh, and also uh, makes a lot of other people like him quite a bit. I mean, there's obviously much more at play than simply his, his personality or the way he comes off, but I think that's a, you know, that's a real big part of his appeal. Uh, I, I certainly don't mean to draw a comparison, uh, but, although that's what I'm doing, I guess, uh, between uh, any of the candidates or the U.S. or, or, or Canadian elections or, or provincial elections of such. But it seemed after the election of Donald Trump, uh, Democrats were were uh, talking more about uh, how Donald Trump got elected and was it fair, was it this, was it that, as opposed to looking inward and asking how a candidate like that could have beaten theirs. Do we have the same sort of scenario here when, you know, uh, we're, we're watching somebody like Kathleen Wynne who has taken the party, um, the Liberal Party, so far to the left that she's pretty much caught, you know, cut the NDP off at the pass. They don't, you know, they, they're they pretty much covering up their basket of goodies thinking that something else is going to get stolen. And then are, should we be surprised that's opened up people to, to want to go back to the other extreme? Is that valid? Well, I think I think with the Liberals and the NDP, and when 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 Wynn came in, was elected as as leader of the Liberal Party, she was the most left leaning candidate in, in among the slate of candidates running to replace Dalton McGuinty. And precisely because of that, I think she was seen as being the candidate most likely to signal change in the Liberal Party. So they could run in an election and say this isn't the same old Dalton McGuinty's Liberal Party. This is something very different, and it's very different because we're going to run to the left and center. But you're absolutely right. There is absolutely no daylight at all between the Liberal uh, platform and the NDP platform. I mean, maybe slivers here and there, but but they are really out trying to outcompete each other for progressive voters. And and frankly, I think that's the only chance the Liberals have to win here. They're not going to appeal to Conservatives. Conservatives are not going to park their vote. Uh, with the Liberals, it seems to me. And so the Liberals understand that if they're going to win, they have to beat the NDP as the party most capable of stopping the Conservatives. And that's clearly what they're going for here. And the same with the NDP. The NDP, I think, learned a lesson in the last election provincially and also from watching the NDP federally, which is that when the NDP tries to run as the Liberal Party, uh, they risk losing to the Liberal Party. And the NDP is now pitching, um, you know, pitching a very strong sort of left-leaning uh, platform here as well. So the Liberals and the Democrats are both pitching spending. They're not talking about balanced budgets. They're not talking about tax cuts for businesses. They're not talking about any of those things. So very clearly what they're trying to do is to say to people who are scared of Doug Ford or who don't want a conservative government, 
if you don't want them, we are your alternative. And it'll be interesting to see how that competition between those two parties plays out over the next few weeks. But at the end of the day, what's fascinating here, Christopher, is is both platforms from a social standpoint are exactly the same. Where people are having a problem with Kathleen Wynne is her fiscal mismanagement, the hydro, uh, the electricity file. Uh, e-health and such, uh, lack of fiscal uh, management. Uh, how can the NDP compete against uh, the Liberals when they basically have the same goodies in the cart but less fiscal platform, when that's probably the weakness that Ontarians see in the Liberals right now? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really the challenge. It's very easy to propose spending increases. It's much harder yeah. to explain to people where that money is going to come from. And, you know, on the other side, it's the same way. It's easy to propose tax cuts. It's often difficult to say exactly where the associated spending cuts are going to come from. But I think that's the issue for both the Liberals and the New Democrats. And right now, you don't see much detail. And it's been a case of we're going to spend on all of these things and don't worry about it. Nobody's going to have to pay for it. Or if it is, somebody is going to have to pay for it. It's going to be, you know, the 1% or corporations. And, I, and, I that's, think- and that's what Andrea Horvath will say when you come out and ask her. She'll say she's going to tax business and, and increase income tax. Does that fly with people uh, in after 15 years of win liberalism? Well, I think people, you know, certainly have enough sense to, to know that it's probably not going to play out exactly like that. It's not, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, the case that you get things uh, that you don't have to pay for and that other people will pay for. Just simply, I think that's a bit of a, a sort of a challenging position for the parties. But, you know, the question that people could ask is really how much can you tax companies and what happens when you do tax companies? What happens when you do tax businesses? Does that have an effect on jobs? I mean, these are, these are questions that people are going to debate, but it's certainly reasonable questions for people to ask. And if you want to look at other, you know, very sort of left-leaning social democratic welfare states in Scandinavia, for example, and other parts of Europe, one of the things that they often do is they have things like, uh, you know, generous social programs. They have like free education, a free even public transit. Uh, people pay higher taxes, but companies don't. So it isn't the case that they've bankrolled these uh, social democratic states on right. the back of corporations. They've done it by keeping taxes high on wage earners. Why doesn't and she sell that then, Christopher? Because at the end of the day, I know what you're saying before. I mean, Mulcair went that way and we saw what happened when you talk too much fiscal stuff. But that being said, I think she would have a better sale on her hands, a better sell on her hands, if she explained how, for example, the Scandinavians do it, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, she could say, you know, even on minimum wage, that one of the ways you can cover a minimum wage increase and make it a little bit less onerous on businesses is to decrease business taxes to say you'll give the workers more, you'll give the government less. I mean, that's the kind of thing that that, uh, that I think that could well be pitched. But, but is I, she? I mean, do you think she's just avoiding fiscal issues? Well, I think corporations are, you know, pretty easy source. If you're if you're looking at, you know, where are we going to find money for all of these social programs? If the commitment is that we're not going to raise taxes on wage earners. It's pretty easy to say corporations because most people aren't a corporation. They might work for one, but they're not, they're not right. directly a corporation. So again, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a great case of the, that sort of example that when you can actually picture somebody getting a benefit, uh, and you, you know, you know somebody who gets a benefit, but you can't picture anybody who has to pay for it. So you wouldn't know any single individual who would have to pay for it. It becomes very easy to support that benefit. And, you know, it works the other way, obviously, as well with things like tax reductions. If you can picture somebody who would benefit from a tax reduction, but you can't think of anybody who would lose out potentially from, from loss of services or in other ways, then it becomes increasingly easy to sort of support that kind of a reduction. But you're right, this is, a, this is almost a, to this point, a stereotypically 
uh, left-right election where the parties on the left are talking about spending and spending, and the party on the right is talking about cuts uh, to taxes, but without you know any sort of cuts to services or four percent across the board cut, but without saying specifically where jobs will be lost. And it's going to be up for voters, obviously, to use their good judgment to try to figure out where the truth lies between these two messages. All right, uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne just announced uh, a short while ago a promise to offer free child care for. Uh, preschoolers uh, starting in 2020, part of the government's budget to be released on Wednesday. The new initiative uh, is touted by the Ontario Liberals as a first in Canada, enables children between the age of two and a half until they are able to start kindergarten to access full childcare for free. Your thoughts on this, and um, especially at this point in the campaign? Well, it's, it's not a surprise given what they've released so far, even if you think of the, you know, the throne speech and the discussion of you know everything care and, and again very much a sort of a spending oriented budget. Uh, it is a it is a bold pro- policy proposal. I haven't seen much in terms of costing or if people have had a chance to look at exactly what that's going to cost or where the money will come from. But um, child care advocates have been saying for quite some time that aiming child care at earlier years is the most effective way to achieve a lot of the policy objectives that child care often aims to achieve. So I suspect that they're now sort of listening to that. A couple of questions will emerge, obviously. One, where are you going to get the money for it? And two, if it was such a good idea, why didn't you do it a while ago? Mm. How, do you an- how do you answer those questions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't see how they, you know, how they can answer them. I mean, increasingly, it does seem to be the case that this is a, a government looking to make some movement in the polls um, and certainly looking to make considerable movement against the New Democrats. So um, you know, they, they may be having discussions in their strategy room that, that we're all together unfamiliar with, but my strong hunch based on what we've seen is that their main concern in the near term is the New Democrats. The Liberals want to align themselves as the anti-conservative party. They're in a competition against the New Democrats to do that. And so a lot of these policy proposals, I think, aren't focused on trying to peel off conservative support they're focused first and foremost on trying to establish themselves as the progressive party in Ontario. And it's harder for them to do that this time than last time because the NDP is also running a bit to the left. So it's, I mean, it's going to be a very interesting, uh, very interesting campaign, obviously. And who knows what announcements are going to come in the next uh, few weeks leading up into the election. But it's very clear given the, the positioning of the Liberals so far that they're going to run on a on a spending campaign. Uh, it certainly seems that uh, once, of course, the PC leadership was uh, announced that that all of a sudden the program started to roll out. And as you mentioned, we'll probably as we get hotter into this into this election campaign, is this one that's going to resonate? I'm sure a lot of people are asking the same questions you you just put forward. Uh, why now? How much how much is it going to cost? Where are you going to get the money? Uh, this sort of thing. However, something like this child care, uh, this gets people's attention will this resonate with ontarians or will they just say you know it sounds good but i don't buy it yeah i mean there may be people who don't buy it who'd like to have it and don't buy it there'll obviously be other people who wouldn't like to have it uh you know different family arrangements for example maybe you know some families choose not to send their kids to child care or something like that i think they probably understand that somehow that, that those programs do have to be paid for and they'll probably end up paying more in exchange for nothing but I think a lot of people, you know, you think if you have you know, three or four kids or if you have even you know, just a couple of kids, child care is incredibly expensive. You now have from mm. the federal level a, a very generous, depending on your income, a very generous uh, you know, child tax or a child allowance. Actually, it can be 
several hundred dollars a month, I think, for many for many families. So, you know, these things are are hard to vote against. And and even if people are dissatisfied with the Liberals, even if they're they're sick and tired of the same government. If the Liberals make it ex- too expensive for people to vote against them, then it may well it may well pay off. But um, but I think you know if you if you still look at the polls so far, there really haven't been too many signs of life so far for the Liberals or for that matter for the NDP. The Conservatives seem to be really uh, you know really in a good position. But uh, the number I think that really ought to be emphasized is the combined potential Liberal NDP vote. Because as we've seen uh, federally and also in the past, there has been a tendency lately for New Democrats and Liberals to move around back and forth toward each other. And if they do that en masse in Ontario to stop somebody like Doug Ford, I think that would make a, a, a real challenge for the Conservatives. Uh, obviously, recent polls, uh, what Ontarians are looking for going into the next election, health care, the big one, jobs in the economy, lower taxes, lower energy costs, uh, uh, kids' education. Uh, again, things that have been announced of late, uh, and I guess the federal government's being accused of this of late as well, uh, certainly nice fringes, but are they the key, uh, you know, dinner table issues that, that Ontarians want to hear about? Yeah, I think so. Certainly, you know, think of jobs, for example, something that just about everybody is concerned about. Um, you know, you also, there's an impression, whether or not it's sort of borne out, but there's an impression that some people are uh, maybe falling behind, that it's not as easy to get by as it might have been. The evidence on that is, is uh, you know, sort of uh, doesn't doesn't suggest that that's the case, but certainly it is the case for some people. And I think also there's a, a lack of optimism that, that just the sense that things are going to get better or that your kids are going to have better prospects than you have uh, isn't as high as it used to be in the past. And those are the kinds of skeptical negative viewpoints that do tend to get taken out against incumbent governments. So, uh, you know, I think the, the, the parties are targeting the right things, um, and I think on, all the way across the board. It's just a matter of, you know, how these things are going to get fit together and, and which, which of the goodies people are going to want to prioritize. When you hear things about tax reductions to increase economic competitiveness to bring back jobs, that's obviously going to appeal to a lot of people. But so, too, are things like, you know, better education, better quality health care, uh, more affordable post-secondary education, and so on. So pe- people do have to make a choice. And I think most people, when they, when they think and they look at the platforms, are able to make a reasoned determination about, um, you know, about what they're going to get from different parties. So when you hear things like a 4% across-the-board cut with no cuts to services through efficiencies, you probably know that that's not the way it's going to play out exactly. And when you hear things about spending increases without any raising of taxes for anybody, you probably also know that's not the way it's going to play out exactly. So uh, I suspect people will make the decision, obviously, that they think is most reasonable. But there's no question that anti-incumbency, and in particular anti-liberal government, is going to be a prominent theme in this election. Christopher Cochran has been with us, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Christopher, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard lots about Russia, largely due to the election of uh, of Donald Trump in the United States, uh, as the ongoing investigation happens down there. Uh, fast forward to across the pond and uh, in the UK, in Salisbury, uh, a chemical attack on a former Russian spy and his daughter, having them in uh, critical condition in hospital at this point. 
And uh, the UK, of course, uh, extremely upset with all of this uh, and ordering an evacuation of uh, certain Russian diplomats, spies, I guess. How do you tell the difference between a diplomat and a spy? Uh, Out of the UK, of course, other countries, including the United States, they jumped on as well. Canada, too. Uh, The United States kicking out 60, which is a surprise considering uh, that Donald Trump basically phoned up uh, Vladimir Putin and congratulated him on his election win. Uh, Is the bromance over? How does this fit into all of this? Let's bring in John Colarusso, PhD, uh, professor of anthropology, linguistics and languages, and an expert on uh, Russia and, of course, out of McMaster University. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. So, are you surprised by the U.S. reaction to uh, to Russia's uh, involvement in this uh, poisoning? Are, are you surprised with Donald Trump and Putin, the relationship they have, uh, that uh, Trump's going to kick out sixty? I'm astonished at one level because it's not at all clear to me that this is a decision uh, reached by Donald Trump, uh, given his past record here with with regards to Putin. Uh, General, the retired head of intelligence, General Hayden, last night on TV, suggested that this decision was really reached by the internal workings of places in in concert, like State Department and CIA, uh, maybe Defense Department as well. Um, And Trump has has not gotten up and said anything. He's not delivered it personally, which makes me think that perhaps this has been a bureaucratic decision at a level that... um, uh, really beyond Trump, and there's something that Trump feels he cannot disown. Um, so, but it is possible that somehow someone has told him, if you don't do something, you're in serious trouble, given Mueller's encroaching uh, thundercloud, and um, that he has to do something now. So maybe he has, um, but that would astonish me. If the uh, bureaucracy has done it, I'm not astonished because I think it is something that. Uh, um, is a due and appropriate response to what's going on. Uh, are you surprised that Donald Trump is as silent on this issue as it appears? Um, normally, he doesn't like backroom people making these decisions. He likes to have control of the narrative. He doesn't seem to on this one, does he? Well, he generally seems to have lost the control of the narrative overall in the last week or so. It's very odd as if something is going on with him. Um, and uh, I would think that he would want to be front and center, and these would be his bona fides for saying, no, I, you know, I'm not pro-Russia, I don't have any any um, entanglement with Putin. It would, also, it, it would also be, it would also, John, be a distraction away from the whole Stormy Daniels thing. I mean, it, he's it, it, relatively it's quiet on all of this. It's a golden opportunity, <laughs> because Stormy's going, Stormy's going to take him down, it looks like. Uh, this lady is a formidable challenge for him, and uh, I don't, I don't, that he's utilizing this opportunity in any way at all. Uh, it's very strange. I, I have said uh, before in other, other venues that he, ha- he may have a condition called frontotemporal dementia, which leads to the loss of speech, loss of judgment, loss of control, and whatnot. Um, and he has shown some signs of that. Uh, of course, I'm making a long-distance analysis as a linguist here, or diagnosis. But um, uh, it's possible that he's having troubles, uh, physiological troubles as well. Uh, I wouldn't rule those out. It's just very odd. It's just not in keeping whatsoever with the Donald Trump we know and despise. <laughs> so how will Russia react to this? They said that they were, uh, that this is a uh, provocative gesture and they promised to respond. How will they respond to the, the, these expulsions? 
Well, my guess is that they'll kick out a proportionate number of about 100 diplomats uh, from various countries, 60 from the American operation and uh, elders from the Carlots in, in Europe. Um, and that would be the usual tit-for-tat kind of reaction. Um, Putin, however, is, is beginning to disturb me a little bit because he, he keeps pushing and keeps pushing. There's very little pushback. Now suddenly he's running up against something. Um, and uh, I don't think he has a clear vision of where he's going with all this. And um, uh, it may play well domestically in certain ways, but that's not enough. Um, you have to also have some sense of goal for your country. And I think if he retaliates and escalates in some way, that would be a drastic mistake uh, on his part. Where uh, where does the expulsion of spy versus spy go? I mean, uh, <laughs> is this a dance? And when the song's over, everyone sits down and goes back to their perspective corners. Um, where does this end? Is it just one of those diplomatic uh, brouhaha's? And and my second question to the in regard to this, John, is why does does Russia care about a spy that's in the UK that is retired? Why would they bother going to such extremes, especially using the the, the tactics that they did uh, to try to get rid of this person, considering all the fuss that this has stirred up? Was this worth it? I certainly uh, don't think it was worth it in the immediate sense of somehow eliminating uh, uh, Sergei Skripal, whom they for some reason seem to have targeted. One, One account was that he had gone some embassy or whatever, that they suspected him of further spying. Um, and, of course, using the nerve agent would send a kind of chilling, horrifying message to other expatriate Russians who might be tempted to engage in, in uh, secondary spying and later in their careers or whatever. Uh, I think that um, uh, Stalin had the right idea when he killed had Trotsky. Killed him. The guy just used an ice axe, boom, you know, when <laughs> you could buy at the harbor or hiking store or whatever. Uh, I think it was a fundamental error to use the nerve agent, uh, and I think it shows that Putin's judgment here is is in some ways faulty. Um, it has initiated, as you point out, the, the spy versus spy diplomatic dance. Uh, where does that go? Well, it, it has two consequences. One is symbolic, that uh, it shows a reduction in a, in a kind of coldness at the state level between uh, the two uh, the various states interacting. And the other thing it does is actually, in some ways, cripple the day-to-day implementation of diplomatic conduct and, and communication. Um, and I think, in some ways, that there has to be a limit to how far that, that process goes. But um, I, I think, it's, I think, in one way, what we're seeing here is what we call one too many uh, phenomenon. So, you know, like the, the, the Parkland shooting, one too many shootings. Um, Stormy Daniels, one too many scorned women. Uh, now we have, like, probably one too many provocations on the part of Russia. And Putin felt like, well, I've done it before, I can do it again. But he's forgotten about that one too many phenomenon. It's very hard to know when to call it, but when it blows up in your face, you know you fit one too many. So you, you touched on this earlier, John. Does Putin have an end game here, or is he just taking advantage of the opportunity that's been presented to him by a Trump presidency? I think he's just taking advantage, I believe. I think that uh, Obama uh, made uh, some crucial mistakes in judgment um, um, and may have warned and spoken uh, harshly to Putin, but he didn't take tangible actions. Um, and that laid the groundwork for supine uh, 
Russophile Trump uh, or Putinophile Trump, who who seems to, to admire and, and and have some kind of weird uh, fawning allegiance to the Russian leader. Um, so I think from Putin's perspective, perspective, seeing that it was very natural, just continue on with you know publications as usual. Um, but I think that in a way he hasn't. I haven't seen any indication that he has thought out an end game for this, where this is going. Uh, even if he manages to disrupt uh, the EU or just disrupt the American presidential election, and so forth. Okay, then what? Uh, what actual tangible advantages are, is Russia going to gain from that? I don't see that he's thought about that. Uh, just a week ago, or a week before uh, all the chat of, of expulsion started, uh, mm-hmm. President Trump called Vladimir Putin and congratulated him on re-election. How does that play into all of this? Well, that, that's the real Trump. Uh, now, is that good politics, or is, oh, that just no. confu- is that just confusion here? That, that was terrible politics. Um, uh, it was interesting, of course, with a very small staff now, you would think that Kelly would have found the leakers by now. Uh, I think one that reflected Trump's uh, instinctive reaction, fear of Russia, they have something on them, uh, fear that uh, he'll be exposed and lose his position. Uh, so he did his usual fawning, balance, great routine. Uh, and then the fact that they leaked, that they advised him not to congratulate, I think is protecting them. I don't expect to find anyone expelled for, for this leak from the White House. This is a self-protective mechanism that's going on for the staff who's trying to contend with the president who is completely unsuited for the job. Uh, and then to turn around a week later and, and expel 60 and not say anything about it strikes me that Trump has not done this. This is someone else doing this. Will this will this affect the Mueller investigation in any way? Well, I would expect at some point that Trump's going to try to to attack uh, the Mueller investigation and dismiss Mueller, for better or worse. And this is why he's shedding lawyers. And wouldn't wouldn't though, would, lawyers, John? Let but, me ask you this though, John. If if the, you've just uh, you know expelled sixty uh, Russian diplomats, wouldn't it make sense that you'd want to get to the bottom of the Mueller investigation? I would think so, uh, particularly if you were innocent, as Trump claims he is. Uh, I would think you would want to show off uh, the expulsion uh, as a sign that, in fact, uh, Russia has nothing on me. You know, I'm Trump, and I'm free, I can do what I want. Uh, and I think that uh, what we're seeing is that, that Trump has, has spent a year being corralled in, or with people attempting to corral and tame Trump. And he's shedding them now because he can't, he's had about all he can take, and he's not so breaking loose. But I think at the same time, it's odd because I think he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't really know what to say. And I think he's frightened. I think he feels that, that things are closing in around him. So I do think it could be useful for him to own up to the expel, expelling the 60, which he has not done. And that would give him in, put him in a better light for Miller's uh, approach and interrogation of him. But I don't see him doing that. Um, so it's, a, again, a wasted opportunity to somehow uh, make himself look, look better in the light of, of Mueller's uh, scrutiny. And considering what Donald Trump uses for photo ops or to get attention or to change the narrative, whatever way you want to look at it, you know, he, he usually brags about his accomplishments. He's usually very quick to 
to point out to everybody what he has done. Yet, you know, as you mentioned, he is silent on this whole um, on the whole expulsion of, of the 60 Russian diplomats, which seems very odd considering his past patterns that normally, yeah, we talk about we booted them out. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you just don't see any of that. You don't see any of the rhetoric. It's a good imitation. No, you're you're precisely right. No, it's absolutely baffling that something is going on. It's weird. I mean, I could fall back on my neurological thesis that he's somehow becoming debilitated all of a sudden, um, which is a characteristic of that syndrome, and it's true. Um, Or somehow he's just at sea, doesn't know what's going on, he's still frightened. Someone else, I, I suspect that someone else has done this. Even if he comes out and tries to claim it tonight or tomorrow, it's too late. Obviously, something weird has happened here, and he's not doing the usual Trump song and dance that we're used to. And he's been off the Twittersphere for uh, over 16 hours now, and then beyond that, it's a day and two days. So he, he's usually quite vocal. He's, do you think he's gone silent? He seems to have gone silent. Um, and I can only think that one, uh, having more or less freed himself up, he suddenly realizes he was actually quite dependent on those people and is frightened and doesn't know what to do. Or two, that in fact he has what they call, it's a variety of frontal temporal dementia, it's called progressive non-fluent aphasia. So he's having real trouble talking. Uh, this, this would be a sudden onset. And it would be presaged by the slurry that went on back in December. Um, so maybe this has happened to him. I don't know. Something funny is going on, though, Scott. It's, it's not business as usual at the Trump house. Uh, what about the whole Stormy Daniels? And then before that, it was, there's another playmate that said she had a 10-month affair. Uh, now we're getting into Donald Trump's personal life. Uh, do people care about that? Is that this going to resonate with anybody at the end? Is this just... Uh, you know, more sensationalized uh, information uh, on the president that we already pretty much knew. I mean, how is America responding to this, do you think? Well, there seems to be a variety of responses depending upon background, region, and so forth. Uh, I think it is demeaning to the office. I think it is demeaning to the person, to Trump himself. And I think that uh, we've sort of become accustomed to him being crude, misogynistic, a libertine, uh, and his poor wife, Melania, uh, out there watching and doing, coping with it, however she, she is coping. Um, that can't be pleasant, no matter what the outcome. For her. Yeah. No, it can't be pleasant for her. It must be a nightmare for her. Uh, but I do think that, that there, there's a kind of a sense of, of showmanship with, with Stormy Daniels, and she is an actress. And she uh, is playing this very well. She has a very good lawyer, Avenetti. Um, and this is something I really I think that's outflanking anything that Mr. Cohen or Mr. Trump can manage to, 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 to field. And I do think that this will uh, sort of seal the, the, the fate and image of, of Donald Trump in history as being an utter, complete, uh, dissolute sleazebag. Um, and, uh, I think but you know what, John? I mean, John, many mm-hmm. many point out JFK. He was a womanizer. Uh, mm-hmm. The stuff mm-hmm. that went on with Clinton. I mean, what what's different mm-hmm. here? Is this is this something that the U.S. public will really care about, or do they care more about the policy and how he's running the country, whether you <laughs> want to go there or not? But well, uh, do, do people want to know what's going on in the bedroom of Donald Trump? 
I think they, they want to know about the policy. I think they care about that. And I think that they care about the human side, the bedroom of Donald Trump. No, you're right. JFK was a womanizer. Clinton was, was a wayward soul. Um, uh, but there's something theatrical about this, and the theatrical setting is something that Donald Trump himself has put forward. So this is <laughs> this is something now. You know, we have the Hollywood tape and the fancy bus, and he gets off and he meets a beautiful woman, and and on and on. We never really saw, perhaps except for Marilyn Monroe, anyone that JFK was linked to. Yeah, it was a lot more discreet um, back then. It was discreet, yeah, and even Monica Lewinsky thing was quite discreet, really. Um, but this is flagrant. This this is serial. It's flagrant. Uh, and it, it's couched in a kind of tabloid format um, for all to sit back and wonder at. Uh, the other thing I mentioned to, to someone the other day was, was that good old uh, Nietzsche said in the genealogy of morals that morals are really shaped and designed to meet the, the interests of the person espousing them. And I would say that some of the stuff I've seen from women for, for Trump and, and all this stuff, that they have warped their values to suit hope for a financial gain. And so they've dropped their normal standards and that they would apply to any other human being and have indulged Trump and, mm. and, and support Trump, which is very disturbing, but something that was predicted in the 19th century by this, this philosopher, Friedrich mm. um, Nietzsche. So uh, <laughs> maybe we're seeing some of that, too. But I do think that there is the, the theater uh, uh, format for the entire uh, Trump love life that um, he himself uh, really used to, to, to obtain the all. Yeah. Now it's backfiring on him. John Colarusso has been with his PhD professor of anthropology, linguistics, and languages, specializing in Russia, of course, in McMaster University. John, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots to talk about when we bring in Gary Dierenfeld today, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. Uh, a Montreal movie theater charging a mom with uh, a young infant, so I'm guessing somebody who would not take up a seat, but somebody who would sit in their lap. Uh, seven bucks to bring the six-month in uh, to a matinee showing. This has sparked debate about whether movies is a place to bring a baby and whether parents... Uh, so there's two issues here. Should they have charged her for bringing in a baby that doesn't take up a seat and then the second part of this is, what are you doing bringing babies into the movie theater anyway? Now, I understand this was a matinee performance, and lots of movie theaters also uh, have special times and, and shows and such uh, to accommodate scenarios uh, such as this. Uh, also, a second part of this debate, uh, an ice cream parlor based out of Toronto which um, is expanding like gangbusters and recently into the United States, uh, their name is drawing attention to, uh, well, a, a lot of special interest groups. The chain is called Sweet Jesus, and they're facing criticism from Christians who say the name mocks their religion. When you see the ice cream, my goodness, I, th I understand how you could say Sweet Jesus. Uh, you probably say the same thing when you go to buckle up your pants the day or so afterwards. Let's bring in Gary Dierenfeld, social worker, yoursocialworker.com. He is with us now. Gary, how are you today? <laughs> I am good. These are quite the topics, Scott. <laughs> well, you know, let's start with the uh, baby in the movie theater, because there's sort of two questions here. It's it's where, you know, at what point do you bring a, 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 a I guess, a baby in arms into a movie theater, and should they be charged? Which one would you like to start with, Gary? <laughs> 
Well, let's talk about bringing a baby into a movie theater. Uh, I would just want to caution parents that the decibel level, the the sound level in movie theaters these days is is remarkably high. I know Mm. my wife and I, we find it oppressive. Uh, the volume in many movie theaters, it literally hurts our ears. And so if you are going to bring a baby into a movie theater, just, you know, be aware of that. You may actually want to put a, uh, a set of um, head-canceling uh, yeah. uh, headphones, uh, noise-canceling headphones on the baby just to protect their ears. Well, and, and you know, you, you talked about uh, the, the, the volume level in movie theaters, and adding to that, it's, it's the... Um, uh, the variance in volume levels. It could be a very calm part of the uh, of the movie, and it's and it's quite pleasant. But then all of a something, all of a sudden, something dramatic happens, and there's a big boom through that huge surround sound system. And uh, yeah, it scares the bejeebers right out of you. Yeah, and so much depends on the movie that you're seeing. You know, if it's Finding Dory, yeah, <laughs> you know that's one thing. If it's Terminator Three, that's another. Now, the issue of whether or not you know people should be expected to pay, you know. Before you even venture forward, phone the movie theater in advance and ask, you know, is there an expectation that kids under three or under one uh, have to be paid for in order to attend? So at least, you know, whether or not we agree that it should be paid, at least you know what the policy is in advance. Now, you know, so if you pay, uh, then, you know, everybody else sit down and shut up. Is I mean, is that valid? I mean, at, at what point does this become a, an issue where uh, as long as I'm paying uh, for this privilege, then my baby can make noise. Right. If and, I'm not paying for this, then if the baby starts to stir, I'll pick it up and get outside. And then that's the other issue. If you're going to bring um, an infant or a toddler into the movie theater, Will that uh, child be disruptive to the other moviegoers? And so from that perspective, I would just forewarn parents to be aware of your own child and whether or not your child is encroaching on the enjoyment uh, of the movie by the other patrons. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, it's so nice for families to be able to get out. It's so nice for moms and dads to be able to get out with baby in arm. You know, I, I, we go to restaurants, my wife and I, we'll frequently see a couple there with an infant who, yeah. you know, typically they're sleeping through, or maybe the mom is nursing, or maybe the child is pitching a fit. You know? We've all been there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> i got to tell you, Scott, my disposition is I, I love babies. And yeah. so, you know, if your baby is crying, I'm sympathetic to you. I'm not angry feeling that you're ruining, you know, my enjoyment of, of the place. Hmm. Uh, obviously, if you're in something like a G-rated movie, uh, this doesn't count. This doesn't matter, does it? I mean, this is a, a, a movie that is designed for kids. Well, yeah, and so we would expect some disruption. You know, uh, I have to go to the bathroom, my popcorn spilled, where's my drink, the seat is sticky. So... <laughs> so when you're in a G-rated movie, especially during the day, especially a matinee, you have to know that there's going to be other children there. And children being children, some may be disruptive. But that's just part of the pleasure from my perspective. That's so, part of why you go. So that's a G-rated movie. Do the rules change once it's a PG, a parental guidance movie, which kids can get in, but they need a parent? Right. So, uh, again, parents, you should know how your kids generally are going to react and respond. 
And it's nice to have a sensitivity to the other patrons. And, you know, if your child is old enough, you know, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, um, teaching them to be respectful of the other patrons is a good thing to do. So uh, the parent can say to the child, you know, you're disturbing it for the other people, can't settle down, we may have to go out until you're settled. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, thinking about it, my my uh, as you're telling those stories, my head's racing back to times when uh, we boarded an airplane coming back from uh, Florida. We were at Disney. And the second my uh, child, and she must, I don't know, I'd probably say two or three, uh, by the sec- but the second she stepped on the plane, she started throwing up. Oh. And it was just one of those scenarios. And, and you know, you could tell that, you know, you were, uh, and everybody was very accommodating and tried to help us. People were passing us back their own bags and such. So if you, if you try to control it, if you look like you're doing your best, I think parents will cut you some slack. Yeah, and you know what? Rather than being an angry par- uh, patron, be a reasonable person. And, you know, last year or so, I was coming back uh, by plane through Chicago. We were stuck in the terminal. The plane was uh, terribly late. There was a mother who, who didn't have English as a first language. And, you know, her two-year-old was, was having a hard time after so much time there. And, and people were just staring at this poor woman. So I just went offer, over and offered support. She wound up phoning uh, her sister, who did speak English. And so between her sister and I, we provided information to this mom, uh, soothe her, comfort her, help her to understand the nature of the delay, and, and then the baby settles. So rather than looking scornfully, uh, see if you can offer support and if you can do so. Uh, that being said, do some take advantage of this? Here's a, a you know a typical response on social media: standing ovation for this theater, who obviously charged the mom for the baby. Uh, I wish there was more. Uh, there were more like this, including restaurants. I'm tired of listening to screaming children in restaurants acting up whilst their parents, uh, have, you know, have their noses stuffed in their phones, aren't paying attention to what's going on. Blah 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 blah. I mean, we've seen that. <laughs> you know, do those people have a point too? That Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we've all seen it, I guess. Yeah. And so uh, I guess if you're that patron, look, maybe you have a right to complain. But again, you know, are you offering a solution? Uh, to sit there and gripe, you become part of the problem yourself. And you actually add to the stress and anxiety of the moment, which doesn't help anyone to improve yeah. themselves or settle down. So even if it is bothering you, I would urge you to be patient, to be supportive, and where you can pitch in, be part of the solution. And that being said, responsibility on parents, too, to know their limits of their kids, knowing when they can take them into certain environments, whether it be a restaurant or a movie theater or what have you, and and pull it off, so to speak. I mean, we see lots of families that do it. Yeah, and uh, you know what? I, I think, you know, that's the goal of most families. I don't know that any parent wakes up in the morning and says, let me give a whole bunch of people an awful experience in a theater, right? Typically, that parent is thinking, hey, it'd be nice to get out. Oh, maybe we'll try. We'll take the baby with us. And uh, they're hoping to make the most of this experience. And so if you approach people that they're generally coming from a good place, they're not trying to make anyone uh, else's lives miserable, then maybe you can settle down too. 
Oh, and you know, we should always uh, mention as well, a lot of movie theaters, if you want to investigate this, have special screenings for kids with challenges or or, uh, autism, this sort of thing, or uh, certain times of the day when they run movies with the the theater turned down a little bit, the lights turned up a little bit. Uh, So if, if you really want to find those, they certainly are out there from what I understand. Yeah, I understand that too. And so um, explore so that you can have a great experience with your child. You can get out. And, and you know what, Scott? We want parents to get out. Yeah. We want them to be part of the community. Yeah. It's protective against uh, things like postpartum depression, uh, anxiety, when you can be out there and enjoy yourself too. All right, let's talk about Sweet Jesus. Sweet it's an, Jesus. It's an ice cream shop, and uh, it's decadent to say the least. Uh, it, they, they're very, very uh, gourmet-looking uh, ice cream cones. Uh, your thoughts on this? This is a, a chain that started in Toronto, uh, expanding across the country, now making its way into the United States, and I guess uh, is getting some uh, blowback. Uh, for the name from uh, certain organizations. Uh, How do we position all of this? Oh, my goodness. Uh, That is a challenging uh, question. And I should also say that the logo, Sweet Jesus, Jesus is spelled J-E-Z-U-S with sort of a, you know, um, an odd-looking Z in there to sort of make it appear like it's slang uh, rather than blasphemy, I guess. What are your thoughts? So, you know, I I am of two minds on this. uh, if somebody were using, so I, I'm Jewish, so if somebody were using a Jewish reference in a similar way, might I take offense to that? And the truth of the matter is, maybe I would. So we do have to have some cultural sensitivity, even if it is to the dominant uh, or predominant uh, culture, and uh, uh, be careful on who we may offend. Now, having said that, the owners of the of the establishment they have put on their website that they uh, don't seek to offend. It's, they're using a, uh, a colloquial idiom to express, you know, a great appreciation for the product, yada, yada, yada. But I guess there are going to be those who will take offense. Um, does it matter that this is an expression? I mean, sweet Jesus was a term, an old term from way back when, I guess, um, uh, to, to, I guess, display astonishment. Uh, excitement, uh, that sort of thing. The fact that this is a phrase uh, that was usually used, you know, in some sort... Well, I can't say it's always a positive environment. I guess some people well, could look, use it the um, other way. There, but because it's a ball, phrase, does that does that matter? There's the, the ball club in the States uh, who was known as the Redskins. I believe they're changing the name. And why are they changing the name from Redskins? Because, you know what, we see that uh, with a certain amount of time uh, that it is offensive. And so, you know, we're, we're reaching a stage in society where we do have to be mindful of these idioms, these phrases, these expressions we use, how we use them, and how they may offend others. And, you know, is this political correctness on steroids? Maybe. Uh, or maybe, you know, it's a knife that cuts both ways, Scott. I mean, uh, if you're going to complain in one 
in one context, why not the other? Is that valid here? I mean, I remember growing up in the 70s, I mean, we tried very hard to get uh, 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 religion um, away from the school system, away from the state per se. Now it seems as more religions and more different cultures are coming into the country, we're allowing for more of that. Is this Christian saying, you know, well, those guys get to do it, so we should get to do it. You were kicking our prayer things out there a while ago. Now these people are getting prayer things. What's that all about? Is this Christianity a blowback of Christianity because they're seeing other religions flourish? Um, it may be a bit of blowback. It may be a good of a bit of what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, if I can't blaspheme your faith in any way, shape, or form, uh, what makes it acceptable for you to blaspheme ours? Yeah. So, you know, I have to look at that with two minds. And, mm-hmm. and some people may look at me and say, <laughs> you don't have a single mind, Gare. And because you can be on either side of, of this debate, uh, I think, quite easily. Um, but this is a, a different time and a different age when we are trying to demonstrate cultural sensitivity, religious sensitivity. And so if somebody says they're offended, I, you know, I have to take that at face value. Is it that one religion is more sensitive to these sorts of issues than others are, or so we assume? So people will take uh, liberty with, with Christianity, whereas they won't with others. Hmm. You know, I, I, I honestly don't know how to answer that, Scott. Um, I just think that the times they are changing, and everyone is more sensitive these days. Part of me would worry a bit that uh, maybe this is taking something too far by 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 those who take offense with with the name of this establishment. Um, you know, they may have their own agendas around that. But again, welcome to 2018. We're telling people to be culturally aware, culturally sensitive, and if that applies to one faith group, why wouldn't it apply to another? Uh, one of the comments was, uh, we are uh, calling not on just Christians, but anyone who is against religious discrimination to take a stand against this brand until the name is changed so as not to be offensive, and until such time it does not discriminate against any religion. Is this freedom of religion versus um, separation between church and state? I'll tell you what it is. It's going to be phenomenal marketing for that company. Yeah, exactly. They're selling a lot of ice cream this weekend. They're going to sell a lot more with you and I talking about it. And Have you got your free case yet? I'm thinking, where's mine showing up? <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't we be enjoying some sweet Jesus right now, Gary? <laughs> Can you imagine if my doorbell rang? and uh, <laughs> Here's your delivery. <laughs> yeah, but, but look at it from that context. Uh, I would. I'm. I'm betting that the proprietors are. are how's this for a phrase? Lapping it up. Yeah. Um, because they're getting a lot of free press on this, and sometimes the best way to to let something go is to let something go and draw less attention to it, not greater. And so I think that the blowback is only going to, um, you know, raise their profits. And if I were cynical. I would say that it was probably the proprietors who started the kerfuffle. You know, that was my next question. <laughs> I'm the same way, Gary. So, is that what they planned the whole time? Or was this just, you know, sweet innocence? You know, and, oh my goodness, this is so good. It reminds me of the saying my grandmother used to say. Uh, is it that, or is it just real good, clever, uh, sly marketing? 
Well, you and I will never know. All we can do is hope that we get our case of ice cream. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Gary Derenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, talking about everything from fighting in movie theaters to now fighting over your ice cream. Uh, Gary, I guess better discussions uh, than some of the other ones we've had. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciated being on the lighter side. There you go. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.